interwebs manuel ramirez here with another edition of the fusion underground this time is something a little bit different this is not the weekly podcast version this is just a little bit of extra dlc for those who have listened to us for a while you know that in the in the past we have um we've sometimes done some dlc uh just um extra content that we'll throw out there in the middle of the week um, you know, just, uh, just because, just because we're interested in talking about something. I am not joined by Jason today. Um, sorry, you have to listen to me again, <laughs> but, uh, in this particular version of DLC, uh, I'm just going to be reviewing or at least giving my thoughts about the movie Dune that just, uh, that recently came out. Uh, I've been a huge Dune fan for a number of years, ever since I was a kid. I first read the books when I was in junior high, middle school. Uh, my father was a, a big Dune fan. Well, he still is. And um, he got me into the books. So like very few fathers actually do. Um, when I was in about sixth grade, my dad gave me two books and said, here, go read these books. One was The Lord of the Rings and another one was Dune. Um, and uh, I devoured both of the books and really enjoyed them. Of course, you know, when I when I was what? 12 years old, 11 years old, whatever, however old you are when you're in sixth grade, I didn't really understand a, parts of the book uh, of, of Dune. Some of it was pretty over my head, but, uh, but my dad had read them. And so he, he and I would, we would get together and we would talk about it while I was reading the books, um, reading the book and um, helped me really kind of navigate and understand some of the deeper meanings that were going on. And I've read the books. I read the the Dune series. I read the entire Dune series, and I I, I read the books um, periodically from time to time. So I was really looking forward to this. Uh, in fact, if you listen, you know the the intro music that I just played. It starts off with Paul Atreides in the very first Dune, um, and that uh, that long live the fighters bit that we always play at the beginning of our of our podcast is from the uh, 1984, I believe, is when that film came out, 1983 84. Uh, version of Dune. Um, and, uh, you know, that Dune is one of those kinds of movies, whether it's the original Dune, whether it's this Dune, the one that just came out, uh, or even the miniseries. If you have seen the miniseries, um, that was, I don't remember when that actually came out, early 2000s by the Sci-Fi Channel. I was actually pretty good. I really enjoyed that one. They did uh, the first two books, uh, Dune, as well as Dune Messiah. Um, kind of cheesy, you know, it's made for television type of thing. So the, the special effects aren't always, aren't always the greatest, but at the time I remember, I remember really enjoying those, um, at least the, you know, the, the attempt, but the, the thing, the challenge about making Dune, the book into 
television or movie, I really think that the that Dune would be better served as a as a series, as a television series. Um, the reason for that is because there's so much packed into Dune, Dune Messiah, uh, Children of Dune, and, and e even if you get to God Emperor of Dune, there's so much in the books that you can't really do it justice in a, in a couple of hours. Um, even if even if you try to split a single book into you know, two, you know, one or two movies, try to split them in two or three movies. I mean, the most you're going to get is between four and six hours worth of content. And, and there's still so much information that's going to be left on the cutting room floor. But having read the books, one of the interesting things, and I, I do this with a lot of films that, that are based on a book, as particular that I've read, Harry Potter films, um, the Lord of the Rings films, as well as the as well as now Dune, is because I know so much about what's going on behind the scenes, uh, that or at least within the book itself at a deeper at a deeper level. Uh, my mind sort of fills in all of the extra fiddly bits, um, so it's hard for me to evaluate this film as somebody who's never read Dune. So I'm coming into this into the film. I went into the film knowing a lot of information about Dune, having read the book several times and having read the series a couple of times. So I know a lot about the, about the, the backstory of Dune and what goes on in Dune. Uh, so my mind kind of fills in some of those gaps. So some of the character motivations, I totally understand because I understand it at a, at a deeper level, having read the book. So, um, so having said that, you know, I was, I was looking at, I was watching some reviews um, online on YouTube and pretty much everybody who is reviewing this film has never been introduced to the material until the last week or two. Most of the reviewers, actually, I don't even think I've saw one reviewer who actually read Dune. Um, I'm trying to think and I, nothing comes to mind. So most of the, all of the reviewers that at least that I encountered had never read the books and they love they love the movie, and that says that says great things. I think for the franchise, it says really great things about the movie making that Denis Villeneuve. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Um, that you know he he had to construct a film such that it was it was true to the source material, so that Dune fans such as myself would be energized by what they're seeing on screen and we would be wanting to give money or support the film in whatever capacity, but also to really be entertaining for, uh, for newcomers to the series. Because there's so much going on, there's a lot of nuance that is gonna be left off the screen. So some of the, um, some of the initial, uh, you know, ideas that I had about the the film. You know, a lot of a lot of my friends, people that I know, have been asking me because I've been because I've been a, such a Dune fan for a long time. They, of course, they wanted to know. Well, well, what did you think? You know, what did I think about the about the film? Um, and so I I thought, well, you know, if, if so many people are asking me about it, I thought, well, I might as well go ahead and, and share some thoughts on on Dune itself. So I've got some, I got the trailer up here. I'm not going to actually play the trailer for you. You can certainly go on YouTube and, and watch the trailer yourself. But um, just some of the things that I, 
I, I wanted to use the trailer to sort of highlight is the my very first takeaway in watching the film was how beautifully shot that this film is. It really is a just this is this will this film will likely be studied by cinematographers for a very very long time how to shoot a film uh, how to light a film how to provide lighting so that you can see the characters or see the background and and how you want the the eye of the viewer uh, to focus on the screen but just how each how each scene is is composed i mean every shot of this film is uh is just a beauty to to behold some of the so i mean even just character shots character shots that you you never would think i mean here's a here's a shot in silhouette um and it's still beautifully framed and rendered on screen um like everything every picture that you see in this movie is is just downright beautiful and here i am i'm just clicking through the the video here and just showing different scenes and it doesn't matter where i click there's just everything is just beautifully shot it's just beautifully composed um definitely you definitely want to see this see this film just for its comp composition and its aesthetic qualities so that part i i, I give like five thousand thumbs up to the production team uh, to Denis Villeneuve's vision for this movie uh, and, and making that a reality on screen. Just a tremendous effort all the way around. The costumes um, were superb in this film as well. The set design was superb. You know, it's it's interesting. Some, some folks have, have talked about the score, the musical score, um, and that it was essentially just lifted from um from blade runner 2024 whatever it was and uh i didn't really notice the score that much while i was watching the film normally i do i think i was just so overcome by the visuals of the movie and uh, and the characters and what i was witnessing on screen and and trying to sort of unpack how the plot was developing to see if it was making sense um, and if it was true to the true to the story, so I didn't really pay much attention to the score um, on my first first watch through. I've only seen it once, but uh, I intend to see it again just because um, just because of the visualness of the of the movie. Um, so overall, I really enjoyed the film. I didn't particularly love the film as much as some other Dune um, fans love it. Um, it's it, it's it is a really good film, but I do have some, some critiques to it. And I will watch this film several times. Um, so a couple of things that, that I don't really, it just doesn't really make sense to me from, um, you know, just from a, a movie making standpoint, there's, um, there's very little, well, first of all, another, you know, a lot of this movie is set on the planet Arrakis, which is a desert planet. Um, and I'm trying to see if there are any desert scenes here, um, that I can, I can show, uh, you know, there, a lot of it, there's a lot of sequence. Oh, the other, the other part too. Yes. The, the part where, you know, sandworms are, are on screen. They're just, 
the 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 size of the worms the the way they move through the sand they, they transform the sand it looks like liquid when it's moving through the sand just really well done very well executed um some of the some of the other sequences that for example um trying to get to this one scene here the, another film that that i you know instantly comes to mind when i see a movie with or like this, like Dune with all of these sand dunes in the background of a, of a shot, I think of Lawrence of Arabia. One of the things that I noticed about this particular movie is it it doesn't feel hot. Okay. Um, go and watch Lawrence of Arabia, another beautifully, beautifully composed, beautifully shot film. And when you see the scenes in the desert, there's a particularly gruesome well, it's not gruesome. Gruesome is probably too too strong of a word. But there's a there's a there's a, a a sequence where Lawrence is being he he needs to get from one location to the coast, and he needs to go through. And the way to quickly get there, he needs to get there very quickly, is to go through um, a part of the desert called the Devil or called the um, um, the Sun's Anvil, and it's like the hottest part of this particular desert of the desert region he's in and it's the sequence feels like an eternity and it's designed to feel like you're on like you're in the desert like you're there and there's a tremendous heaviness and weight of the sun pressuring down on the scene and the sequence and you just feel you can it's like you can almost feel the heat that the characters are are suffering through um this is a desert planet and it doesn't feel hot. Um, that was my first note, my first kind of takeaway. Uh, at the somewhat at the beginning of the film, when House Atreides lands on Arrakis, um, there's a sequence where uh, the, the guards are having to shutter up the palace because it's starting to get to the, the hottest part of the day, or at least it's starting to get hot anyway, really hot. And then the very next scene, we see Paul Atreides, the main character. He's down in the courtyard outside in his suit, buttoned all the way up to the neck. And he's walking around like it's like it's no big deal. And as somebody who's born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, and, and has experienced quite often every year on an annual basis, uh, the oppressive summers that that you can endure here in Phoenix, you don't want to wear a suit anywhere outside when it's uh, when it's over ninety degrees. When it's over eighty degrees, I'm I, I don't want to wear a suit. Uh, and and yet, it's very it feels like or it seems like the temperature would be really high, um, over a, well over a hundred degrees. And he's walking around and he's not even breaking a sweat. And and this is a character who comes from the planet Caladan, which is a water planet. It's essentially I like what I like to say is. Paul Atreides went from Seattle, Washington to Phoenix, Arizona in August in a suit. And he's like, no big deal. There's not even the sense of none of the characters have that sense of when they first step onto Arrakis of, oh, my God, it's hot. And if you've come to Phoenix, Arizona in the middle of the summertime, that's the first your first reaction when you step off the plane or you get out of the car or whatever is holy hell, what, why do people live here? And, and yeah, I ask myself that same question every year. You, you, 
you, when you, when that wind hits you or that air, that hot, hot air, especially when you're in the sunlight hits you, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's reality smacking you right in the, right in the face. Um, and it, it's oppressive. That sun is just so oppressive. And I never really felt that from, from this film. I never really felt like the characters were really enduring the heat or trying to survive the heat. Um, now to their, to their credit, when the characters are in the desert, uh, there's a lot of the desert scenes are trying to, you know, are filmed at night or at dusk or at dawn, because if you're a human, you want to interact in the environment at the coolest times. But keep in mind that even in Phoenix, Arizona, in the middle of July or August, at one o'clock in the morning, it can still be over 100 degrees. So it's still, you still go outside and man, you know, the, the heat is just there and it's just lingering. And I would imagine Arrakis would be something, would be something very similar to that. Um, although given the fact that there's, there's no concrete, there's no city or anything like that, it's very possible that the, that the planet could, could cool off considerably, uh, at night. Okay. Um, a little bit of backstory for those who may not really understand the story of Dune. The movie starts off on the planet, planet Caledon and house Atreides, um, their house or different royal houses. Keep in mind that the, the universe of Dune is really this fantasy novel with a lot of fantasy tropes stuck into a science fiction universe, okay? So there is an emperor and there is a, this large empire and there are different ruling houses that each have different um, fiefs that they control, different territories. There are, there are major houses and there are minor houses. And within that universe, because there's that empire and a lot of uh, royal houses, there the part of the backdrop of Dune is that there's a lot of political jockeying between houses. Everybody's trying to one-up each other. There's a lot of political backstabbing and plans within plans within plans kinds of kinds of things. And we lose a lot of that here in the film. So uh, part of the decision was to not focus, uh, not place a tremendous focus on the politics going on within inside the empire. Um, but there's a lot going on. And we the, the story begins with House Atreides, whose homeworld is Caledon, and they have been awarded Arrakis to take over caring for Arrakis, which has been home to the Harkonnens for a number of years, for like 80 years or something like that. Um, or the reason why Arrakis is important is because it is the only location where something called spice, the spice melange, um, is harvested. And the spice is used for a number of things. It's not only used as sort of like this narcotic that that uh, the royals and, and the rich like to imbibe, think like cocaine, uh, but it's also, it's also um, it expands consciousness. It, uh, it gives the Bene Gesserit, um, which is a, a group of women, they're referred to sort of as these witches, but it gives them access to certain powers that they have. Um, and the spice also allows for interstellar travel. So there's an entire group called um, navigators that they use the spice to fold space so that they can, so that humans can travel 
pretty much instantaneously from one side of the galaxy to the other. So they use the spice to help them fold space. That's pretty deep into the Dune technology and the, and the Dune backstory that's not really um, explored in the film. And probably for good reason. I think it would, I think it probably would have been very distracting to the overall plot. Um, now, the reason why House Atreides has been awarded um, possession of Arrakis now is not because the emperor is happy with House Atreides. In fact, the emperor is concerned about House Atreides. And he feels, he believes, based on a lot of other, a lot of other machinations going on in the back backstory of Dune, that House Atreides will be the fall of the Imperial House, which is House Carino. And so he sets up the Atreides uh, by giving them Arrakis, and the Emperor conspires with the Baron Harkonnen to essentially destroy House Atreides on Arrakis. And so that's that's where we we start, and House Atreides is getting ready to uh, to make the final move to Arrakis. Of course, when they get to Arrakis, they encounter the Fremen, which is uh, basically the low the local indigenous population of humans that reside there, uh, and they have had this prophecy that a Messiah would come and basically lead them to the Promised Land, so to speak. Um, and Paul Paul Atreides the son of Duke Leto Atreides, he is viewed as that Messiah. So all of that is going on. And then, of course, the Baron Harkonnen, he attacks House Atreides and essentially does, um, is allowed, you know, enables to, or I should say he attacks the, attacks the house and wipes them out. Yes, there are spoilers. I probably should have prefaced that. There are some spoilers. I'm not going to get into a lot of the details of the, of the storyline. Um, all right. So that's what all this is about. Paul escapes the attack from, from House Harkonnen, goes off into the desert and starts to integrate into um, the Fremen um, within, the, within the people of the Fremen. Um, and then of course, and that, that's kind of where the story ends. It ends at that, at that point within, um, within the book. Um, um, some other, some other issues that I've had that I had with the film, you know, there are, there are some really great actors. I think there are some really great actors in the, in the movie, but unfortunately the, each actor is really just a single note character. Gurney Halleck plays um, a very pissed off um, character. He's just mad at the world, at the universe. We don't really understand why he's mad. We don't really know why he's just, yeah, we just don't really know why he's mad. He's just angry at everything. Um, Jason Momoa plays Duncan Idaho. Um, come to find out, Jason Momoa just simply plays Jason Momoa. So he's just Jason Momoa dressed as a Dune character in this movie Dune. I didn't really find his his acting to be that um, that compelling. Um, the um, Duke Leto Atreides. Um, it was same. It was played by the same actor who played Poe Dameron in uh, in Star Wars, who I like to refer to now as Poe Atreides. So Duke Poe Atreides. Um, there were a couple of lines that there were a couple of scenes with him in it that the scenes just felt very stunted. And I would have loved to have seen some of the other takes that he delivered. I think he's a fine actor, but they're just some of these film. Some of the scenes just felt really wouldn't they didn't it didn't really bring him out as well as i think 
he could have brought out. Um, Timothy Chalamet, he plays Paul Atreides. Um, he's like this emo kid. And um, I, I would have, I, so the character of Paul Atreides changes very little from the beginning of the film to the end of the film. Um, and I don't think that's really a great thing to have happened. If you read Dune, the character of Paul does change a lot from the beginning of the book, even to the halfway point of the book. And we don't really see Paul Atreides um, morph and change and develop and grow as a young man during this time, keeping in mind that the character of Paul Atreides at the beginning of Dune is 15 years old. old. So Timothy Chalamet, I think, does a real, I think he does, he's very iconic. He's, and he's a fine actor as well. Uh, but I think that's, I think this is more of a, of a slight against the writing team than it is really against some of the actors. Because again, Paul doesn't really transform. He's not really seen as growing. Um, you, you know, yes, he sees these visions and, and things of that nature. And yes, he's a good fighter. He's been trained by other members of House of Trades. But we we saw we saw that kind of those those characteristics at the very beginning of the film, and they exist at the end of the film. So he doesn't really he doesn't really grow and doesn't really um, transform all that much, unfortunately. I really liked the performance by the actress who played uh, Jessica, the lady Jessica. She had some really great scenes, and I was really interested in what was going on with Jessica. Uh, in fact, uh, I, you know, sadly, I really, when the movie ended, I was really more interested in a film about the Bene Gesserit, uh, which is this coven of, of, I guess, women savants, women, I don't want to necessarily call them witches, but everybody else does in the books. Um, you know, I'm more interested in what the Bene Gesserit are doing. I'm more interested in what House Harkonnen is doing, what the Baron, Har uh, Baron Har Harkonnen is doing. Uh, I would have liked to have seen the film do more with those groups. Uh, and we get very little screen time with them in the movie. Um, keep in mind that the that the Baron, you know, the um, people have been saying that um, Stellan Skarsgård, who plays, uh, who plays the Baron Harkonnen, is fantastic in the movie. And it's really hard for me to say that he was fantastic because he's in it so, and he's in so few scenes. Uh, I think he has maybe like five minutes worth of screen time. It's very little screen time at all. Uh, I would have loved to have seen more scenes with him. And there he's, he does have a bigger role in, in, in the book because, and he's the, he's one of the main characters where we see a lot of the political machinations going on um, behind the scenes. So it would have been really nice to, to get some more of, of the Baron's story in there. Um, so the the acting I thought was okay. The the um, the actor who plays the character Stilgar, I didn't think he was all that great when the first scene when I when I saw him in the movie, but by the end of the film you, you get a couple of extra scenes with him, and I started to really like his character. So I'm really looking forward to um, the second part of this movie uh, when we get to see more still more of Stilgar in the film. And yes, the second part has now been greenlit. Again, this is really weird. Uh, in terms of strategy for this film, because they should have greenlit the film before the, the second film, before this first film was even released. It, the the visual feast that this movie is, just the, they I think 
you would have had to be been living in under a rock to think that this movie was not going to get a really good reception. Uh, and it, it is doing well in the, in the, in the theater. I think they should have announced a version or a part two and greenlit part part two, or even have it underway by the time this movie came out so that there are some people that are like, you know, I'm not going to go see this movie because I don't even know if part two is going to come out, but now there is a part two. So I would highly encourage people to, to check out the, check out the first half of the film. Um, another complaint that I have is the way that the Harkonnens are portrayed in the movie uh, in this particular movie. Um, you know, the, House Harkonnen is this uh, this lifelong enemy of House Atreides, and although that rivalry is not fully fleshed out in the Book of Dune, it does exist throughout the entire book that House Atreides and House Harkonnen are at each other's throats, and have been for a long time. In this film, we when we see when we see the Harkonnens, well, they're the bad guys. But they're only the bad guys because they look like they're bad guys. And because the director tells us that they're the bad guys, or the characters at least tell us that House Harkonnen are the bad guys. Um, they're not villains because they do any villainy in the movie, really. Um, they're villains because, well, the actors, you know, characters say that they're villains. So I, I thought that was sort of a disservice to... to um, to the house, to House Harkonnen. Um, so yeah, there's there's really no reason to dislike House Harkonnen other than we're told that we should dislike House Harkonnen. Um, some of the other, uh, another another thing that I just didn't really quite understand is everybody wears these shields and and uh, the ships, different ships and things have shield shieldings. They what they don't go into is that shields interact very badly with laser guns so and they're called las guns so if you get shot if you shoot somebody with a las gun and they're wearing um they're wearing a shield then there's like a, a it's like a nuclear explosion goes off uh so you can't really you can't you, you have to be very careful if you have las guns and shooting at something because you don't necessarily know if it's shielded or not and that could be bad not only for whatever you're shooting at, but also for you and for the area, especially if you're trying to take over a particular area. Well, they don't really go into that explanation at all during the film. You do get to see the shields, but the shields don't really work. They don't work at all. And so I was kind of left wondering like, well, why does anybody have shields? You have you have these, these warriors that fight hand to hand all the time. Um, and you, they, those shields don't do anything. You, you run up, you, you stab somebody and, um, you know, the, the, there's a nice little fluttering effect of the shield as the shield is kind of like being hit. Um, but guys are still dropping left and right. I get why the armies don't use guns, just even shooting a ballistic, because if you're wearing that shield, the ballistics are just going to bounce off. So they have to go to hand-to-hand -hand combat because the idea is that what they say in the not in the movie and in the book is the slow blade penetrates the shield. Um, so you have to move something slowly to get through the shield. So sh obviously then shooting, shooting a bullet at somebody, it's not going to slow down. So it's just going to ricochet off of the shield. So that's why the characters have to have to resort to um, close in hand-to-hand -hand combat with swords 
because they don't know who, and you don't want to shoot them with a las gun. You can't really shoot them with bullets because that's going to be ineffective. But striking and, and moving very, very fast with, with a sword still seems to get through the shield. So I don't really understand what that does. Um, and then same with there's sequence where the House Harkonnen is attacking House Atreides from the air and they have these shields. House Atreides has these shields on these, on these ships and House Harkonnen launches these rockets and the rockets just blow up the ships even though they're shielded. And, and again, it just doesn't really make sense what the shields do anyway. So if rockets can blow up the ships with shields, then why can't um, the armies just shoot bullets at them? Again, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense. It makes for really cool looking sequences on screen um, with the, the fluttering of the shield effect and then the massive explosion, you know, and the, the robotecking missiles as they come in and hit. Um, all that looks great, but it just doesn't, you know, if you think about it, it just doesn't, it kind of violates the rules of that are being set up in the, in the universe itself. Um, so th those are kind of my, you know, are, are they, are they big issues? No. Are they issues that make the movie less great? I think so. I think it, it, it takes the movie and just kind of brings it down a notch. It doesn't, you know, is it, is it something that's going to keep, are these, are, the my little nuances that I pointed out going to keep uh, this film from winning any kind of awards certainly not, um, but it's just some it's some minor inconsistencies that I wish the production team would have been a little bit more diligent uh, either in terms of explaining what's going on with the technology and again you don't have to provide a lot of uh, exposition around that but you have to make it seem so when we see something that doesn't look right we know why it's responding that way or why the you know, you know, why the universe is reacting in that way. So by not setting up um, the shields and, and at least from a story perspective of what happens with the shields and why we can't shoot bullets, but yet why rockets can, you know, when, when you just kind of hand wave all that away, it breaks that verisimilitude because it sets up, oh, we've got shields. They're going to be protecting us. And then all of a sudden the shields don't protect you. And it's like, well, well, why not? Why, why doesn't that work? You've kind of violated the rules of your own universe, so you have to kind of, you have to take a step back and and figure out okay if we're going to have the rockets blow up get past the shields and blow up spaceships like normal without slowing down why is that possible how does that happen um, and then at least then there's um, there's a bit to understand there and we can go oh okay I get it uh, and again with House Harkonnen they needed to, they really needed to be fleshed out more because again the only reason why they're the bad guys is because we're told that they're the bad guys. We don't really get to see them do any bad guy stuff on screen. So we're, we just, we're supposed to hate them because we're told to. And I don't, I think that's kind of, um, I think that's kind of bad storytelling. The fact that this movie is over two and a half hours long, I think there would have been a little bit of time. Um, there could have been a, a little bit more time to tell some of the Harkonnen's story, particularly where this story ends, where this first film ends. This first, this first film ends at a very weird place. Uh, at the end of the film, um, Paul Atreides, again, spoilers, Paul Atreides fights, um, fights a duel within the Fremen. And then he gets, he joins the Fremen, um, you know, this one siege within the, the Fremen civilization or society. So he's inducted into the tribe. And then the movie ends at that point. And that felt very weird to me. And the reason why that felt very weird to me is because 
even though this is the first part of a larger book, there still needs to be a first, second, and third act to the first part of the film or to the first part of the story. And I think a natural first act would have been, or I'd say a natural third act would have been the fall of House Atreides because that whole battle, there's a huge battle that takes place. And that the first, the first movie could have built up to a third act of the battle between House Harkonnen and House Atreides that leads to the fall of House Atreides and then ends with Paul and Jessica being out in the desert. Um, I think that would have been a great place for the for that for this story to end. And had they done that, they would have saved about 30 minutes of the film. And that 30 minutes of the film could have been then used to tell some of the story about House Harkonnen and show why they're the villains and what's going on. We could have had more screen time with the Baron, et cetera, to set up that villainy that's going on behind the scenes. Um, all of that could have taken place during act two of the film, which would still culminate in the act three, the big explosive battle, the, you know, and, and Paul and Jessica being sort of left to the devices out in the desert. Cause then it puts it on a script on a, on a, on a cliffhanger, sort of speak like, well, what happens to house Atreides and what happens to Paul and Jessica? Are they going to survive out in the desert? Obviously we know they're going to survive. They're the main characters, at least Paul does. Right. So we would know that, but, um, and I'm talking, speaking more about those who are not those folks who are not familiar with Doom. So it kind of leaves things on a, on a cliffhanger note, um, kind of open-ended. And I think that would have been a, a better place for the, the film, for this particular film to end, which would have been a really good way for the second film to begin, which is with Paul and, and Jessica then meeting the Fremen um, where Paul then goes through the duel and becomes initiated into the, into the Fremen tribe and yada, yada. Right. And then we kind of go from there. Um, you know, this movie ends and we don't even, we don't even get, we don't even, Paul doesn't even get the name of Usul and Muad'Dib. Um, so obviously that's going to come in the next film. So I think a lot of that joining of the Fremen tribe and everything should have really happened in the second film. Um, my other biggest complaint is I think this I think this this series should not have been two movies. I think it should have been three, to be perfectly honest. Three movies for the singular for the one book. There's just so much going on there, um, and knowing what I do know about the book, there's so much more that hasn't happened that um, I think it would have been it would have been a great way to just really allow that story to to tell to to expand tell each of the movies in two and a half to three hours, um, give us all of that content because there's so much good stuff happening on screen. There's so much good story here that we're, we're going to miss a lot of it by just compressing the set down into two films. So I think three films would have been, would have been great. Um, I really hope that they do um, Dune Messiah, uh, Children of Dune. However, the, the challenge of keeping Denis Villeneuve onto so many films in the Dune universe would probably be a challenge because as a director, yeah, he'll love to get Dune kind of out of the way. And then he'll probably be looking to his next big project some, somewhere outside of the Dune universe. And I just don't, 
think that you're going to be able to find anybody who's going to be able to recreate this visualness, this, this, this beautiful, beautifully shot film. I don't think that anybody's going to be able to recreate that for uh, a Dune Messiah or children of Dune um, set of movies. Should that come, unless you pay Denny Villeneuve a lot of money and they might do that. Who knows? So anyway, I just wanted to give this review to give uh, a take from somebody who is a big fan of Dune, who has read the books. Again, yeah, I had a few, um, you know, a few quibbling um, annoyances about the film, but overall, I do think it's a really great film. Um, and I, I definitely encourage anybody to go see it. So, all right. So with that, thanks for watching everyone. And again, catch you this week. This week, I have talked to Jason. He will be joining on the, he will be back on the show and we'll kick things up as normal. Until then, stay safe, everybody. Cheers.